Welcome to the Nat and Sarah Show, where we aim to touch, move, and inspire you every single week. Really? We're really going to introduce our own show? Maybe we should leave it to the pro. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. One second, ladies. Here we go. Sarah Maxwell and Natalie Cook are experts in visualization and deliberate use of the law of attraction. As dynamic world athletes representing Canada and Australia in beach volleyball, they honed in on achievement at the highest level. Winning an Olympic gold medal on her home beach of Bondi is a pinnacle example. Their powerful techniques transmute the spiritual to the tangible, allowing thousands of their community members to bring their vision boards to life. Recently, they've taken their expertise on the road as the full-time family, where they inspire, coach, and lead people to create their unique, deliberate family life using a simplified three-step process. Welcome to the Nat and Sarah Show. Join us for twice-weekly episodes. Each week, Nat and Sarah will teach us how to deliberately create results in all areas of life using their unique three-step process. Not only that, they'll also sit down with some of their favorite high achievers who have manifested what most merely dream about. Are you a member of the community? Go to bit.ly slash the Nat and Sarah show to download your three-step journal to follow along with each workshop style teaching episode and get ready to take action on your inspirations. Today, we continue the conversation with a social innovator and global change maker who took a horrific event in her life and transformed it into a solution that benefits humankind. Until 2010, Megan Gilmore was busy with her work in international aid and development when her son was diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. Stopping everything to help her son revealed a huge social problem, education for kids that can't attend school due to illness. So of course, she co-founded the not-for-profit Missing Schools in answer to that. She is a Churchill Fellow, a TEDx speaker, and recently, 2019, Telstra Business Women's Award for Purpose and Social Enterprise winner. Woo! So having been mentored by this dynamic woman is such an honor. Her strategic work in the social enterprise sphere makes her inspiring, unique, and in action for the betterment of humankind. I hope to be like her one day when I grow up. I thought she'd laugh at that. So thank you, Megan, for taking a slice out of your jam-packed day to devote to other changemakers-in-waiting. So welcome, my friend. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be here. Ugh, and what an so intro. <laughs> what an intro, I know. That's you, right? Isn't that crazy? Like, you did all that. Um, living into it, trying to live into it. <laughs> as, as all people I find who are really up to something in life is you almost hear that and think really because you're so in the moment doing what you do that you're not really doing it to, to tick those boxes and, you know, win a church hill fellow, church hill fellow. Um, so Mike, I was so curious because we have worked together before. However, I didn't know this. So, you know, I'm still a curious being, I use these podcasts to learn for myself. So Megan, as a little girl, did you always have a dream to make a social impact on the world? Thank you for this question. 
it's one that I only revisited recently, actually, when I was getting my my bio written by somebody else because um, I realised that I needed a little bit of help to um, to just pull out things that I might not be seeing. And I provided her with a whole lot of material and she came back to me and said, this is all wonderful, but what's your origin story? Mm. Um, and that really threw me because I didn't have a ready answer for it. So I went away and spent a few days thinking about it. And I guess that helps me to answer the question. So um, I guess my background as a little girl, like my upbringing, my context was I, I lived in possibly the lowest socioeconomic area in Sydney, in Australia. Okay. And it was at that, you know, I guess back in the early 70s when I was a child, it was a hugely diverse multicultural environment, which I didn't think about until I went out into the wider world later on and realised that that's, that was unusual. Mm. And um, so I guess what I, what, when I look back on things and I trace it back, I see that around that time living with such difference and diversity and um, I won't even say a tolerance for it. It was just my world. That's what it was. Right. I, I guess I developed out of that a huge sense of social justice that probably came out later on when I saw racism and bigotry and um, more of that. So I was also raised, um, my mother's a Catholic and my, my father's agnostic, so that was an interesting um, mix. The only thing they didn't argue about was religion, they say. Um, but I went to a Catholic school. So I guess that social justice aspect as well was an early part of my experience. Um, much as I've sort of um, divested myself of the Catholic church. Um, so yeah, and I think I left school at 15, even though I was mm. academically, um, I was a high achiever. Mm -hmm. And I said to the, the woman who wrote my bio that I guess this was my first experiment into social innovation <laughs> because people saw that as an unusual choice for someone who was academic. Right. But um, I suppose I saw the world a different way and I wanted to act in the world in a different way and I didn't just want to fit in with what was expected of me. Did so you have? That did you do activist activist like things as a kid that you can remember? No, not particularly. But I remember I was a defender of the underdog. Got it. Got it. So, and that's I didn't um, I didn't like to see people being pushed down. Mm. And and um, I guess at that time I probably understood that I had had something in me that could help. So. But I do put down a lot of my, my the early formation of, apart from the things I've mentioned, of my sort of social point of view, my worldview would probably be coming out of British punk music, <laughs> which was my love as a teenager, and alternative music, um, punk new age, mod music, whether it was from Britain or the US or whatever. So... Um, I suppose what came first, the little rebel or <laughs> did right. the music shape that or did the music appeal to that? Who knows? But that was definitely formative. 
Got it. Interesting. Mm. That's, that's interesting to hear about music actually. Cause um, I have something brewing. There's somebody else that also music really shaped their beginnings and I'm going to, it's coming to, as you're speaking, it's coming to me. I'm going to bring it up, but I want to know, you know, when your son was diagnosed with his illness, um, you know, we can really see that some of the critical changes that you've made were qualified by that event. So did you ever think that health in any way would be something that would stop you in your tracks or was that just like blindsided? Uh, well, I was blindsided by his illness. There's no doubt about that. Um, I guess theoretically we know that health is the first wealth. Um, I think maybe Emerson said that. Um, I can't remember who, but it is the first wealth, right? Um, and we know we need our health to do anything, but it's not until you see someone completely incapacitated mm-hmm. um, with a health issue that you realise that there is nothing else unless that's fixed or right. can be fixed. And as the parent of a child in that circumstance, you're in it with them. Mm -hmm. So your life also is um, matched to that, to the extent that you are there living in the hospital too. Um, Even though you, you don't have the the health issue personally, your life is affected as if you did. Good point. Cause you're spending all those hours by his hospital bed. And can I ask how long he actually, um, spent in the hospital uh he was critically ill for two solid years <sighs> so we lived and he was in protective isolation for about six to eight months which means he lived in a room hospital room um with very little contact with the outside world um and so i left my job um we moved house as in we had to we had to go and live in Sydney, we live in Canberra, and we had to move to Sydney, which is where he was receiving treatment. So my, we were separated from my daughter Mia until she, um, until she uh, said she was coming, and she was going to change schools to do that. I'm so glad she did because I think our relationship probably would have been next to over if she had not have shared that last year with us, because it's such a um, traumatic experience to go through, but if she would have had a traumatic experience of her own on a di- on a parallel but very different pathway, if she wasn't with us. Wow! So I'm beautiful. glad she had the foresight to insist. Wow! Yeah, you ju- thank you for talking about the, all the different arms of effect because you know in movies often you see the you know the silent character. She's one of the family members, you know, who's getting left yeah. a little bit behind. And, and I think you've just had this um, awareness of the bigger picture the whole time, which is to maintain a relationship with your daughter through all this as well. So how did it begin to shift? Like, tell me about sitting in that room. Was the shift of the work that you wanted to do and your passion, did it start to like spear itself there you know there's a lot of hours of downtime did it happen there or was it after the two years when things when you realized your son could recover no it actually came out of the real um the force of it actually came out of a bid to try and save his life because i could see 
his circumstances, his medical circumstances became so complex and difficult that he was deteriorating and um, he'd, you know, he tried so hard for 18 months and put up such a fight. And then if your whole life is already over, if everything you care about is already gone and fading, your friends, your school, um, your connections, your fun, your ability to use your body, um, then what, what are you fighting for? And so I could see him starting to kind of opt out. It was getting too hard. And that's when I, that to me it was what can I do to save this kid's life? And that's, that was really how can I show him that he has a future, that he can survive? And I just turned to school because that's the thing he told me was so important to him. And, well, what is school to a kid? It's their life. It's their community. Mm. Yeah. And, and then it was, you know, I would, you know, we talked a little bit about this that you're doing and act as if, you know. And it was at times I scripted him through a future that I imagined, you know, I can't wait to see you graduate year six and imagine when you start high school and we take you there and, you know, and I, I went through and I helped him envision that and, you know, it's not the only thing that saved his life because we had amazing medical care, but without hope, I know he would have died because yeah, it was really, really hard. And that's why, that's why I do what I do. So it started there for him. And then I just saw something that seemed so obvious to me was, all right, now I should really ask for help to connect him back to his school. I should really do this, you know. And I thought everyone would rally around and say, oh, yeah, okay, here's what we'll do. And that didn't happen. In fact, the opposite happened. I started getting blocked the more I pushed and um, I'm a pretty persistent person, especially when, um, you know, I'm told I can't do things. <laughs> so I sort of went, this is interesting, and that's probably where my, my background and my work experience came into it, and I could see that this wasn't, I wasn't being singled out for special treatment here in that, you know, nobody was just doing this to me or him, that actually what I'd uncovered was um, something that was probably happening to most kids in a situation like Darcy's, yeah, and that it was a systemic problem and it was a problem of invisibility and, if, you, if I want to be brutal about it, a problem of um, benign low expectations yeah. You know, oh, they're sick. <laughs> yeah, and invis- you want to not. And perhaps a sense of, I don't want to see this because if I do, I might fear something in my own life. Yeah, indeed. And also something that faces all of us and it faces us as entrepreneurs and people who are aspiring to do things, which is that limiting belief that doesn't allow you to see another possibility. So somebody at some point in time had this operating paradigm 
that spread that everybody has had, which is, oh, they're sick, we should wait till they get better, which, of course, is not like, um, why can't they do the things they care about? Sure, this, they can be quite unwell a lot of the time, but why, why can't they do some of their schoolwork and why can't they see their friends? But I'm going to sit in that paradigm for the old paradigm mm. because I just got really emotional, you know, you could see it, but you know, we're just speaking. So, and I think what it was, was I got it. I didn't get it until you just described why it mattered. Mm. Like I did yeah. like, and I think the old paradigm is, Oh, who cares about writing a math test? What does that matter when you're fighting for your life? But it's not that it's about, this is hope. This is my community. This is what I care about. And, you know, you think about other organizations that bring hope, um, you know, mm. like make a wish foundation and, and you kind of understand that. But I always wondered the one thing I wondered about when you do one wish is it's one thing once, but what you're doing is a continuation of why does my life matter? And you're right. This is like the social like engagement that you've got as a kid. It's like your, your whole world, literally. It's your world. Yeah. And what are we telling these kids if we tell them, not even verbally, I mean, not even deliberately tell them, but if all of a sudden we don't care about their education, what message are we giving them? Yeah, like, We're not going to make it. <laughs> and kids are so incredibly smart. I mean, they, they're intuitive, right? They've, their little bodies and brains are designed for survival. So they sense a lot before they can even verbalise it. So, you know, and one of the kind of catchphrases or catch lines I use to make it really palpably clear is we've got to do more than save bodies. We have to save hearts and minds as yeah. well. And that's, what I, th- that's what I got from what you said. Mm. Like, like saving someone isn't about their body it's about their spirit and that's it thank you for that yeah what is a life what is saving a life so this is and and thank you for also saying it it took a moment in time there where you had this realization about it because that was the same for me even when I was with my child at that time I mean I'm an educated person I value education and it didn't become you know, I tried to keep him connected to school and I thought, what happens if he, you know, if he misses out on a lot of school? And that was an intellectual exercise for me. But across the, across the time of his illness, um, the longer the time went, the more important it became for me to show him he mattered today and that he was remembered by his community. Yeah. And, you know, I had, I had a teacher say to me, oh, we'll just, when he comes back, we'll just do it. And I said, well... I don't, you can't see what I'm seeing. Yeah. That, that's I don't know if he's coming back. I want him to know that you cared about him today, that his friends cared about him and remembered him now, you know. So this was, this is the fire. This is the, this is what fuels it and um, the fact that these kids fight so hard. But um, I want to say something that you just said to the teacher, you can't see what I see. Because I want everybody who's listening to really get the importance of casting a vision, like being able to take what you see and share it powerfully because what you just did for me was what I'm sure you did for the teacher, but also the government. 
when you really went inside the government and saw a gap and spoke, you can't just, um, you know, give stats. To me, what you do is being able to let somebody see what you see. And this is what we want people to understand is so important is being able to um, paint that vision. And if you can get somebody emotional to me, that's like that picture became a picture for me. And, mm. and that's what I, I really got to me. I also saw um, older people. I really got that. It's the same. Um, there's yeah, a complete the um, spiritual death, you know, the spirit and the hope and, you know, I thought of a couple examples, you know, of course, that's what you do. The pictures go to things that you can relate to. It's like, whoop, and, and it's the same thing over there. But I just want to make one more point because in, in the intro, I didn't um, mention that you're at the front end. You're so innovative in that bringing robotics um, to this project because initially I thought, well, just get the schoolwork into the hospital. But no, your vision is so clear because that is not, what this is about. This is about having him engage in his community, in his classroom with the people. So just describe a little bit about that element of robotic and how you're, you're solving that, that problem. Yeah. Yes. So, um, and we didn't have it at the time when Darcy was sick, but the, 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 what the telepresence robots do. So imagine, um, you know, an iPad or a, a tablet on a, um, a stick, if you like, with a base and wheels, mm-hmm. um, and video conferencing in through that through that iPad or that tablet. So the robot, as I've just described it, stands in a classroom for the sick kid when they're not there, when they're in hospital or at home, allows them to be in their ho- in their classroom from wherever they are. They can see and hear the teachers and classmates. They can be seen and heard. And they can even move the robot around from their keyboard remotely. So, and this last piece is really critical because we could accomplish this with an iPad and Skype, right? Theoretically, we have that. Um, But what the robot enables, the robot is really anthropomorphic, which means it sort of represents a body. And it, and it's the capacity to independently move it around that makes all the difference because that's, that represents um, us in the space. So we can turn it, we can look, we can move to a group, we can um, go off to assembly, we can be in the hallway having a chat. So, you know, that's the difference here. It's the mobility that it offers um, on top of the video conferencing. Yeah. And you know what? And you've said, you said the word there, but maybe there's something really deep happening here and you, you're so on top of it is that holding space is worth like self, like almost worthiness, you know, holding space in a place with choice, you know, the choice absolutely is really what you're yeah. talking about. And that's, that's maybe what we're actually living for, huh? It is, and it's so great that you put it that way. And I, I'll, I'll use that as another description because um, you've touched on a really critical element of um, the social innovation architecture here. Because the technology is one thing, so the technology looks like the innovation, but it's actually a social innovation. That's what we've architected 
here. And the, the choice of that um, description, that you, like the, the robot that holds space in the place that you should be, holds space for you, it's a proxy, has been, was carefully chosen by me as what I call in that this sort of, um, and I urge people to read Jim Collins' Good to Great and his follow-on monographs because I'm going to talk about them a bit here. But um, he calls, you know, in your business to go from good to great to have a catalytic mechanism. And for me, the robot is a catalytic mechanism because by holding space in that environment, it does a whole lot of other things. It gets the teacher's attention. It can be problematic, but I don't mind that. I don't mind that the teacher has to work it out and sometimes it doesn't work and sometimes they have to call their IT guy in and it's usually a guy. And, um, <laughs> you know, that some, a buddy has to turn it on and make sure it's charged because guess what we're doing now? Where there was invisibility and forgottenness, there's now remembering an action for that person. And so it catalyzes change in the school. Yeah, got it. It places the problem in the classroom. Instead and that's of forgotten, the, that, swept under the carpet space. Too hard because you're not in the room. So we're talking about diversity here. We're talking about new ways of inclusion. We're talking about science, technology, engineering, maths in the classroom. We're talking about a whole lot of boats being floated. And those other things that I've mentioned have also been important, important to the uptake, the perception, the government's point of view of it in different states. Wow. You know, it's, it's, got, it's got attention and that's what needed to happen. And like how many years, give people a little spectrum of how many years this has been going on because, you know, I think some people short-sighted in got this idea going to go to market, doing, doing, doing. So it doesn't really happen like that, does it? So where it doesn't it taken to get to here and what's next? Where yet? Yeah. Okay. So it's taken, uh, we're at the 18 month point in implementing the robot pilot, which is an Australian first. And it's probably first in the world to use this exact kind of mobile robot technology across a whole country. So that's almost, we're, we're almost operating in eight states and territories across K to 12, across all illness groups and um, using government systems to do it. And um, so it took a year to, to get to there and we're at the 18 month point. So, but how long did it really take? <laughs> I started this in 2012 as a, an official organization um, with two other mums. And so it took until I, I, pitched the, um, I pitched for the grant when I was on my Churchill Fellowship from the Netherlands and so from 2012 to 2017 it really took me that amount of time to get this into the real world from um, a dream a vision and um, to make it a palpable real you know thing that was happening that's right now, there were many other steps along the way there and there were different things we did that led to that being possible mm -hmm. but you know that was a pit that's been the period of time so like in order because i wanted to establish time because i'm sure there wasn't a lot of accolades 
especially for those two other moms that you're working with and, um, you know, and you're being stopped a little bit because this was different and new. So do you constantly connect why you do what you do or do you um, have to kind of step back and remind yourself? It's, um, it's both. So I'm constantly reminding myself to connect Okay. Um, Because when you're doing anything, let's call it endeavor, let's call it edge, operating at the edges, Mm -hmm. edge thinking, edge manifesting, edge whatever, um, it's disruptive. It's people can't see the vision at first. And it's kind of worse than people putting in barriers in place or people being negative about it. It's that they don't care. No one talks about it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm. It would be nice if somebody was kind of <laughs> agitating against you, but no one gives a damn, you know? <laughs> it's like, mm. meh. So um, to me, it's always it's always there. I, I'm, But let's face it, the days can be boring, right? Right. When you've got to do the accounts on the thing and the stuff and tick off your checklist and you know, you're, you're on the, what I um, always refer to as the uh, triple constraint in any project, time, money, scope. Um, you know, if you've got more of one, you'll have less of the other too, yeah. um, or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's goes like that. So it's hard. What I always come back to is why am, why am I doing this when I want to give up, which is every day. I'm going to be on <laughs> You're awesome. I want to tell everyone right now that there are many moments in the day when I'm like, why am I doing this? I don't want to anymore. I'm over it. Or there are tears or there are tantrums. Um, There are plenty of all of those things. And what I come back to is I made a commitment. I, I promised myself I wouldn't turn my back on those kids because of what they do. And I, on my really tough days, this is what I ask myself. I have a choice here. They don't. Is this really hard? So that's what I say. Is this really hard? Yeah, that's hard. And mm. yeah, and my answer is very clear. No, this is a choice. You can stop it at any time, but don't say it's too hard. Okay. Um, so that's how I, I reconnect to it. And sometimes there are, you know, some of those beautiful enlightened moments with fresh tears and joy and um, gratitude and the, the absolute connection to it at, you know, at a full, full, full level. And then there are the other times when I've just got to bootstrap it and pull myself along. And I know and bootstrapping it and, and making sure that you have a daily do, like I know that's one of your strengths, whether that was from your, background before but you know you're to me you represent organization and and when we worked with you that's what you really helped us with is um taking some of these inspirations and ideas and and putting them into a daily you know operation you know so what do you have a process do you wake up each day and go hmm, what am i inspired to do or do you sort of have it all mapped out oh um it's again it's both i i I don't have it all mapped out. So probably the best way to describe it. Well, I'll say one thing first. Yeah. What I've learned through this whole whole time, this whole process, is that inspiration and motivation are existent about 
0.01% of the time. Yep. You know, when you read that fresh, you know, quote and you were like, (laughs) you know, on Facebook, something scrolling through and you're like, it really, and then the next minute you return to your um, to-do list and right there, (laughs) you're overwhelmed or so I say that motivation is a myth Mm-hmm. that it's only action that counts mm-hmm. and the way to shift a lack of motivation and inspiration is to take action. Um, okay. And so what do I work to? Um, I You talk about mapping, um, how do I map or whatever, and it's I, I operate and I teach I teach this too and my partner, one of my partners and I developed it for business. It's it's a theory of change. It comes from the social sectors. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way of looking at an ecosystem of a problem, which essentially that's what a business does or a mission does. It's solving a problem. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way to map that problem down to its root causes such that there's no further you can go. And once you do that, you can see and you map all of the elements of that down to root causes you can then you can then use a um a solution map Mm -hmm. and you lay it over the top of it it's very powerful because it's um it gives you a theory to operate to and test it gives you a pathway of action and quite often you can choose a pathway that hasn't been chosen before or something, as I've talked about before, that has this catalyzing effect where by doing following one pathway or one one part of the mapping process, you can get this effect where it it has a sort of um, effect beyond your steps Mm -hmm. and, so you get more bang for your buck, basically. Um, so who, who here is listening going, we need, <laughs> Megan, we need Megan back to talk exactly about this problem definer, <laughs> solution, you know, action yeah. step um, mapping process. This, this is what I'm thinking. And I know everyone else is like, keep going, keep going. However, I want to kind of um, – guard that if I can and Mm. and if you're okay with that and and kind of like um allow a whole episode if you're cool with it yeah happy (laughs) happy to do that people you ask people live right it's like the total (laughs) pressure move (laughs) that's right who's gonna be (laughs) the one to go now so I would love I'm too busy I'm not able to do that (laughs) sorry I am solving the world's problems um if you'd be up for it I'd love to actually um come right in and and focus on that so that people can have their notes out and and really um learn that process if you're up for it because to me it's very powerful like you can't see this you guys but behind Megan is like part of that action you know I can see that she's got like a a map and there's like all these post-it notes and lots of colors. Mm. And, and to me, imagine waking up every day with a sense of, I know what I'm doing. And like Megan said, action helps you move through the overwhelm. And so to me, I think a lot of people go, yeah, I get that, but action, what, like, what am I going to do? So, so I would really love to, um, if you're cool with it, do that. And, um, Mm. one of our other goals is to always have our conversations feel like a little bit, 
like we're not fully satiated. And, and I know that's um, not always Need common, more. but yeah, I want, we want more, right? And that's how I feel with you. And I just want to appreciate and thank you for sharing how you really share a story and how you do it with letting me see what you see. Um, we've worked together before and I've never seen it like that before. <laughs> and so thank you. I had a visceral experience. And to me that, that always means um, wake up to that. There's something here for me. Um, so I hope, and I know that other people have experienced that as well. And I just want to thank you for being my friend and being willing to share what you do with other people so that they can also make a difference in the world. So thank you. My great pleasure. Yeah. We just need more change makers to come on board and do their thing follow follow as you said i think a really good note to to wrap wrap it on is um around vision is there are things that only you can see and what are they because they're the things where we can really make huge change on and huge shifts because whatever it is that's brought us into our place in our life our our upbringing, our worldview, whatever the components of us are, whatever that we're constituted of, makes us able to see something or a number of things in quite a unique way. And um, that's, that's what I'm going to be building on and doing next is, is um, this sort of insights for social change. So, oh, see, she's just dangling this carrot in front of us. Megan, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Don't forget to join the community at bit.ly slash the Nat and Sarah show to download your three-step journal and participate in weekly lives found only in our private group. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You've got to rate and review the show. And I know all the podcasts are always asking this. And in the past, I wasn't doing it. And the reason I wasn't doing it is because I actually didn't know how to do it. So open your podcast player and click on our show from your library, not the listen now. That's where I was going wrong in the past. So now that you know how to do it, when you go there, make sure you give us a five-star review. Five stars, five stars, five stars. And then click on write a review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny, maybe a bit serious. So if you want to recommend this to someone, you have to put your fingers on the keys and send us a review. Thanks.